Hark, it's an extra special solo side pod. This is Paul Abbott here with an extra episode for you. Normally in these shows we look at one of Ed McBain's 87th Precinct books per month. But we also sometimes take a look at other things associated with Ed McBain, Evan Hunter and the world around the 87th Precinct. This episode was inspired by a question about a particular... Well, I suppose you'd call it a McBain magazine spin-off. And this was asked about by the author Sarah Weinman on Twitter. Sarah has edited collections of crime fiction by women writers and she's the author of the book The Real Lolita, The Kidnapping of Sally Horner and the novel that scandalised the world. Her curiosity about a particular 1970s publication seemingly related to the 87th Precinct set me off onto a research trail that I thought I'd share with all of you. So first things first, before I explain about the 70s, we need to head right back to the start of the 60s. By 1960, Ed McBain's 87th Precinct series was already very well established. March of that year had seen the publication of Give the Boys a Great Big Hand, the 11th book in the series. There'd been films made of Cop Hater, The Mugger and The Pusher, A couple of the stories had been adapted as part of the Craft Theatre TV show, and within a year, the NBC TV series, The 87th Precinct, had made its debut. It's no surprise, then, that his publishers wanted to cash in on the success of the series. It still wasn't widely known at that time that the mysterious Ed McBain was in fact the author Evan Hunter, writer of The Blackboard Jungle and Strangers When We Meet, amongst many other stories written under many other pseudonyms. But Pocket Books, his publisher, decided to use the McBain name to launch a magazine. And I will say here, when I use the term magazine, it's not in the more modern, glossy, sort of large format. This is more like a, well, they're about the size of a a large paperback book, just a bit bigger than a paperback book and about the same thickness as well. But they are published as magazines rather than to go into bookstores. So the publication was Ed McBain's Mystery Book. And although the magazine bore his name, I've no evidence of how hands-on Ed McBain was with the editing work in reality. Certainly he'd got the skills to do it, having worked in the Scott Meredith Literary Agency, but by 1960 he was pretty busy all the time. In that year, for example, he produced three 87th Precinct books, a collection of short stories and the screenplay for the film version of Strangers When We Meet, And that's purely in terms of what was published or released, let alone whatever else he was working on and planning at the same time. My suspicion is that Ed McBain's role as editor was that he probably selected stories from a range suggested to him, or possibly recommended or approached authors he knew and respected. Lawrence Block contributed two stories, one as a ghostwriter for a story featuring characters created by the author Craig Rice, who Ed McBain was co-credited with on the book The April Robin Murders, Rice having passed away in 1957, and one under his own name called Package Deal. So I asked Lawrence Block on Twitter if he recalled how his stories came to be selected for the magazine, and he said, If I remember correctly, the three-issue magazine was edited in-house at Scott Meredith. I was asked to write a story for it, and to ghost a Craig Rice story as well. The magazine was pretty good overall, I don't know how much Evan had to do with it, but it didn't sell enough copies to make it past issue three. The magazines actually list Robert Goodney as managing editor. I can find next to nothing out about Goodney, 
I can find a reference to him in an article in the journal Resources for American Literary Study, which refer to a piece of correspondence from him to the author Willard Motley, asking if he wants to contribute to Ed McBain's mystery book, but I can't tell you anything more because I can't access the full article. Sorry. It also looks like Goodney may have asked William S. Burroughs to contribute to the magazine as well. Neither Motley nor Burroughs did. It seems that Goodney's main job was writing letters to authors and their agents seeking contributions, an essential job given the compendium nature of the magazine. The list of authors in the first issue of McBain's mystery book is fantastic. Not only does the magazine contain the first appearance of the story The Empty Hours, which later became one of the three stories in the 87th Precinct book of the same name, but there are contributions from Ross MacDonald in the form of a Lou Archer story and Anthony Bauscher, well known to our podcast listeners as the crime reviewer of the New York Times that loved so much of McBain's work. There was also work by Richard Matheson, who's the author of I Am Legend, and hundreds of other stories and screenplays. Helen Nielsen, Fletcher Flora, Richard S. Prather, Rex Lardner and Vincent H. Gaddis, who I think is the author of some paranormal stories and is the guy who coined the phrase the Bermuda Triangle. Issue one of the magazine has a great cover by the artist Harry Bennett, who illustrates the Shell Scott story by Richard S. Prather. Shell Scott was Prather's private eye character who, like the characters of the 87th Precinct, appeared in a huge number of books over several decades, but stayed resolutely the same age in every one of them. And maybe McBain took some influence from him as he developed his own series. I think my favourite discovery about Prather although this does come from Wikipedia, so get your pinches of salt at the ready, is that he had, quote, a disagreement with his publisher, Pocket Books, and sued them in 1975. He gave up writing for several years and grew avocados. Harry Bennett, who illustrated all the covers, is someone who anyone who has read or collected any pulp, horror or gothic books will definitely have seen the art of. The covers of Ed McBain's mystery book showcase his paintings with a clever use of negative space and almost cut-out paper designs, simple but very effective. Art direction was handled by Sol Immerman, the designer was Richard Smith, production manager was Maxwell Marks, and the associate editor was Demi Marciano. The byline of the magazine was, Every story new! And for 35 cents, getting 10 new stories every other month from such great authors was really good value. Really, this should have been a great money spinner for Pocket Books publications, except, as Lawrence Block pointed out, it wasn't, and it only ran for three issues. Possibly one of the reasons was that, aside from issue one, there were no new Ed McBain stories in the magazines. The last of the three issues appeared in 1961, and then Ed McBain's mystery book was no more. If you want to have a look at the covers and contents of the magazines... I can recommend Phil Stevenson Payne's fantastic website, Galactic Central, which you can find at philsp.com. Now, before we move on to some other publications, I'm going to go all podcast on you for a little bit. I'd briefly like to step aside and ask you to help us out if you can. The one thing that really helps podcasts to reach bigger audiences is reviews and ratings. If you've been a long-term listener, perhaps from right back when we started in November 2016, and you've done this already, thank you very much. If you've been a listener that long and you haven't left us a review or rating, then if you could take a couple of minutes out and do so in your podcast app or wherever, then we'd love you even more than we already do. 
which is a lot. If you don't want to leave a review, then what we also love is if you could share, retweet, repost on whatever social media sites you find us on, or tell friends and family about us, you're likely to know the people who will appreciate this podcast. If you want to go even further, then we've got a coffee site, where for $3 you could buy us a digital coffee as a one-off donation. Anything we get will go back into podcast production and the hosting costs, etc. Just visit ko-fi.com slash hark87podcast if you want to do so. Regardless of the above pleading, the thing we really like is hearing from you, getting questions and comments and sharing in the journey through the history of the 87th Precinct. So please stay involved, and if you look for Hark 87 Podcast, you'll find us on most things. So now, back to the good stuff. The cancelling of Ed McBain's mystery book wasn't the end of the story for magazines relating to McBain and the detectives of the 87. In 1961, the year the mystery book finished, viewers saw the first episodes of the new TV adaptation of the 87th Precinct. Starring Robert Lansing, Norman Fell, Ron Harper, Gregory Walcott and Gina Rowlands as Corella, Maya, Kling, Haviland and Teddy Corella respectively, the show ran for 30 episodes into 1962 and produced a whole host of tie-in media and appearances from the stars in TV listing magazines and articles. In fact, if you get the DVD box set that's available now as a bonus interview disc with Ron Harper, Bert Kling, and he, he goes through his scrapbook from the period and you can see little examples of all that stuff. But one key tie-in with this TV show was the 87th Precinct comic. It featured new stories starring the illustrated version of the TV cast, meaning that Meyer is drawn with hair as Norman Fell has, the stories are set in New York, not Isola, and Haviland is much more avuncular than his literary equivalent. The tie-in comic series began in April of 1962. In the British edition, the comic was a bumper affair, filled out with other crime stories unrelated to the 87th Precinct, such as the tale of the motorcycle cop, who was a stunt rider before joining the force, after his stunt career came to an end following an incident with a flaming hoop. Well... Let's hope he doesn't have to drive through any fires in order to prevent crime. Oh, look, he does. It was released over here in the UK by Top Sellers Limited, who published a lot of TV tie-in material, such as Bonanza Comic and Casper the Friendly Ghost, amongst many, many other things, lots of cartoon-based ones. In the US, the comics were produced by Dell Comics, which was one arm of the larger Dell Publishing Company, who in 1965 would become the publishers of the actual written 87th Precinct series for a run of three books in the mid-60s. The Dell editions of the comics were in colour, whilst the UK version was black and white. In issue one, which was issue two in the UK, the 87th Precinct story features a blind artist who believes he's developed psychic art-making powers after having his eyesight taken from him by an aggressive hawk. Also, he does murders. In an attempt to catch him, Corella uses Teddy as bait, but the magazine also suggests that the Corellas have an unbreakable psychic bond as well. It strays somewhat from the gritty realism of the actual 87th Precinct stories, as you can tell even from that quick pricey. The US version of the comic varies from the UK release as it only features the 87th Precinct story with no supporting comic strips. But it does have all sorts of other things in it, such as a page describing sign language, an exploration of different psychic powers, a description of sight and seeing. 
And it's all a bit peculiar. It's hard to track down the credits for it, although we know that the artwork for this story was done by Bernie Kriegstein, an excellent artist, but it seems like illustrating the frankly ludicrous script for the 87th Precinct's Blind Man's Bluff story finished him off and it was the last comics work he really produced. I don't think anyone's been able to track down who wrote the story for the comic. It's worth mentioning, though, that the comic is marked as copyright to Ed McBain, so although he probably wasn't writing them, it seems very unlikely, he was making sure his intellectual property was protected. Issue 2, which I assume was issue 1 in the UK, was quite hard to track down. A few years ago I stumbled across someone on Twitter who was relating details of a talk given by Andrew Kunker, an academic at USC Sumter, who was using the story from it to illustrate the relationship between comic publishers and the Comics Code Authority because the story involved detailed descriptions of drug use and behaviour on drugs. And yeah, it really does. It's not a great story. Basically, Corella goes undercover to bust a drug smuggling ring but it has detailed discussion of the use of heroin and the terminology surrounding drug use, and maybe it was that that meant that issue number two became the last issue of the comic. Once again, it was a McBain spin-off publication that did not last very long. So, it's now September 1962. The main 87th Precinct novel series is up to book 17, like love, but the TV series is done after 30 episodes, the mystery book is no more, and the TV tie-in comic is kaput. That, I suppose, could have been it. But if we jump in our McBain McTime machine and wind the clock forward to April 1975, we'll now find on the newsagent's shelves a brand new publication in the form of Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mystery Magazine. Brand new! Except it seems to begin with issue number four, and they've spelt McBain wrong on the front cover, adding an E to the end of it. Someone clearly didn't check the galley proofs before it went to press, which is doubly remarkable because his name is spelt correctly elsewhere on the front. As before, the cover text promises all new stories from McBain, spelt correctly, as well as from Arthur Porges, Theodore Matheson, Gil Brewer, Richard Lewis and others, the artwork for issue one is a painted image of a young woman shocked to discover, as she looks through a furniture store window, a man slumped over the keys of a grand piano, whilst a hand holding a huge knife is driving home another blow into his back. Whether this relates to any of the stories or who drew it, I can't tell. I've not been able to get hold of a copy of the magazines yet to have a look at the credits or the stories inside. The artwork for the series does seem pretty tame, given the grittiness of the 70s, 87th Precinct stories. The whole thing looks and sort of feels very much like a throwback to the 50s. Just a thought on why the first issue is numbered as number four. There's some suggestion that as it was a monthly publication, first appearing in April, this was merely a reflection of the month of the year. I can understand that logic to some extent, but why wouldn't you just call it Issue 1, April 1975? And besides that, the seventh issue appeared in August, so the system doesn't necessarily work. My personal theory is that someone, maybe McBain himself, knowing of the existence of the first magazine, the mystery book, thought, well, if that only ran for three issues, let's make this one start with Issue 4, almost like it's a continuation. The only problems I can see with my theory are... A. 
it's 15 years later. B, it's a different publisher. Oh, and C, it's a different title. And D, why bother? In terms of publication details, this magazine appears courtesy of Leonard J. Ackerman Productions, whose Hollywood address tells you that perhaps they're not your classic magazine publishing company. Actually, it appears that this was the production company of the titular Leonard J. Ackerman, a producer whose credits include the Rod Steiger film Al Capone from 1959, the TV series Target the Corruptors in 1961-62, an Ellery Queen TV movie in 1971, and more significantly, the movie Every Little Crook and Nanny in 1972, based on the novel by none other than Evan Hunter. I can't help but get the feeling that perhaps Evan and Leonard were pals, and it was this that led to the reappearance of the magazine, rather than an approach from or overture to a traditional publishing house. The editor was one John H. Burroughs, and it doesn't take much research to find that he too was a producer and production manager who had worked on Al Capone and Target with Ackerman, as well as on many other TV and film productions. Again, perhaps not your typical choice for a magazine editor. Another interesting point is the magazine's name, Ed McBain's 87th Precinct Mystery Magazine. I can understand why you'd want to put the 87th Precinct into the title. By 1975, there were 31 entries in the book series, having an amazing run of form in the past few years, and yet not one issue of this magazine contains a single 87th Precinct story. The McBain stories you'll find in the magazines were as follows. A story called Roundelay, possibly the first appearance of this in print. Now Die in It, a Kirk Cannon story that had appeared in an old issue of Manhunt in the 50s. Good and Dead, another Kirk Cannon story that had appeared in Manhunt in the 50s. And The Death of Me, another Kirk Cannon story that had appeared in Manhunt magazine in the 50s. So, I know what you're thinking. After the mystery book, an 87th Precinct comic only lasted for five issues between them, surely Ed McBain's 87th Precinct mystery magazine finally managed to iron out the problems and go on to run for years and years. Well... No. After four issues, publication ceased. I can't provide you with a reason. The list of authors is perhaps not quite as inspiring as the earlier works, and the effort for finding that much material for publication each month was probably a heck of a job, and maybe, given they seem to be a TV company rather than the publisher, Leonard J. Ackerman and his pals weren't up to the task. Probably, as with the earlier magazine, sales just weren't that good. There are a few fiction magazines that have endured for a long time. Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine began in 1941 and is still going strong, for example. However, Manhunt, a place where several pseudonymous Evan Hunter stories found their home, had begun in 1953 but had folded by 1967. Argosy, another place we see early versions of several McBain books, had existed in one form or another since the late 1800s, but the glossy pulp version of the 40s eventually wound up in 1979. Alongside what was perhaps a waning interest in the magazine format, the 87th Precinct stories were clearly the most popular of the McBain output, and a magazine named after them, but not delivering any 87th Precinct content, probably disappointed those readers who'd have been most likely to buy it. I can't say for absolute certain, but I don't think that after 1975 there were any more attempts to put McBain as the figurehead of an anthology magazine or comic, although it wouldn't surprise me to find out that there might be Japanese manga adaptations. 
but I can't find any references to any. If you know of anything, do let me know. Readers would just have to make do with the next 30 years of tales of the 87th Precinct in their proper published book form, not to mention everything else that McBain wrote before he died. Thanks to his dedication to his writing, there was always plenty of Ed McBain and Evan Hunter to read, and it's great to be able to explore it now as a back catalogue of work. So that's a bit of a summary there of the various spin-off publications related to Ed McBain's 87th Precinct. Thanks for listening to this side pod. Join us again soon on The Usual Pod, when I'll be back with Morgan and Steve-O to discuss the next book in the 87th Precinct series. So until then, fare thee well. <laughs>